The fourth son, not the first son, gives rise to Judaism. Now this is, I wish I had a board to do what I'm gonna do right here, but I'm just gonna spell it. I'm gonna go slow and just spell it. Yehuda, which is what Judah comes from, the name Judah, comes from Hodea. H-O-D-A-I-A. They both mean to praise, okay? Genesis 29, verse 35, talking about Leah, and it says, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. She said, I will, and the word is O-D-E, and that word comes from Hodea. It's the verb form, and it says, and I will praise the Lord. And then she called him Yehuda or Judah. The Hebrew shoes shows the play on words here, and this is why Judaism is sometimes called the religion of praise. Today we call the descendants of Abraham and Jacob Jews. They had several names in the past. Abraham was called a Hebrew. Do you know what Hebrew means? Genesis 14, 13 says that Abraham crossed the river, and that's what a Hebrew is. The word in Hebrew means to pass over or to traverse. And people who crossed through the Euphrates or sometimes the Jordan were called Hebrews. Then, when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, they were known from that time on as what? Israelites, okay? But then, after that, there was a time they became known as the Jews. Now, the first time the word is used, 2 Kings 16.6, the word Judean is used, and it's talking about in the time of Ahaz, which is where we're at right now in the book of Isaiah, Syria drove them out of the town, and they were called Judeans, okay? Sometimes people think that's the first time they were called Jews, because it's the same thing. But the name Jew did not become a common name for the sons of Abraham until the nation returned from Babylon. At that time, there were some from every tribe in the land, maybe, is what I've been reading. I can't prove that. But Judah was the most prominent tribe. It says that they were called Judeans, or in the short form, instead of saying Judeans, they were called Jews. I understand this because when all my kids, and they come up with a three-syllable name, that doesn't work, okay? Because I'm not going to go around saying, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to go, Joe, Sam, one syllable. I like that, okay? That's the way it was back then, okay? They called them Jews. In the New Testament, the words Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew are synonymous words to describe any child of Israel. Now, this is an example, just one of several, where Jacob's prophecy about Judah will come true. Because Judah will be told in his prophecies that he is the leader of Israel. Today, a Jewish commentator said this. He says, if you ask anybody today that if he is a son of Jacob... You ask him, who are you? They will not say that I am from a Reuben or I'm a Benjamite. They will all say today, I am from Judah. I am a Judahite or I am a Jew. Now, I want to take a shot here. Can I have fun for a second? And there's a reason I'm doing this. I read an article this week in the news that says that 
the moving companies in New York City are overwhelmed because so many people are moving out. They don't like what's going on there, so what are they doing? They're moving to a better place, some place where they can live the way they want to, okay? Now think about this. And then what we're doing, trying to do is we're trying to answer a question. A lot of times it's asked about the Jews. We're the lost ten tribes of Israel, okay? Now there's a reason I'm going there, okay? One of the things that happens when you talk about the prophecies involving Israel is they say they can't happen. And one of the things, there's a lot of different thoughts, but one of the thoughts is there's no way that Revelation 7 can be fulfilled because 12,000 of every tribe is going to come. There's going to be 144,000. Now, if there's 10 lost tribes and we don't know where they're at or who they are, then how can you in the future come up with 10 tribes and 12,000 from every tribe? Okay, where are they? I have been doing some reading, and here's one possible explanation, and it fits here. If you were a Jew during that time, after the nation of Israel split, after Solomon, okay, what happened in the north? The 10 tribes in the north did not worship in Jerusalem. What did they do? The king at that time did not want them to go to Jerusalem because where's Jerusalem? It's in the southern kingdom. And the way he was thinking that if they were to go to Jerusalem to worship, instead of staying home, they might want to reunite the kingdom. He didn't want that. He wants two kingdoms. He wants his own kingdom. So, nope, stay home. So what did he do? He needed to give his people an an option. Instead of going to Jerusalem, he set up a new system. And he gave them two options. He gave them Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. And as symbols of the new system, he set up gold images of calves in each center. Now, does that sound like Jehovah worship as described in the Mosaic law? No. What does that sound like? It sounds like Baal worship. In his way of thinking, and what he offered to the people was an alternative to worship Jehovah, but in a new way. What he was trying to do is he was trying to compromise. And he was trying to say that we can do both. We can worship God and Baal at the same time, and everybody can just get along. And you don't need to go to Jerusalem. He built a temple. Actually, it means house of high places. And when you think of high places, what do you think of? What we talked about last week, idol worship. Just doesn't work. He also made an annual feast so that you would not have to go to where every male Jew went once a year, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he set a date up one month after the date of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you are in the top 10 tribes in your northern kingdom and you are a true worshiper of God, and there would have been some, maybe not many, but there would have been some, and you wanted to worship God in the right way, what would you have done? Would you have gone to Dan or any place else and worshiped the golden calf? What would you have done? If you wanted to worship God the right way, you would have had to gone south and gone to Jerusalem, and what was in Jerusalem? The temple. 
That was the only place a true worshiper of God could truly worship God. There was and always will be in every situation a believing remnant. There had to be at this time too. So, it is possible that what happened here is that representatives from each tribe were in Jerusalem at one time or another. So that means possibly that when Assyria came down under Haaz in 722, there could have been representative from the whole nation there. But what were they called? They were called Jews from the tribe of Judah, okay? Possible explanation. But Isaiah gives us a really good answer. He says in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, And assemble the banished ones of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He'll say it in chapter 11. He'll say it again in chapter 49. And he'll say it again in Isaiah chapter 60. Over and over again, you know what God says? He says, I know where they're at. And I'm going to gather them. And the day is coming. They're going to come home. Let me read it to you a couple of them. 60 verse 4, listen, it says, a multitude of camels, he's talking about the future. He says, a multitude of camels will come, will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephraim. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense, and they will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. I skipped a verse. I'm sorry. Lift up your eyes. Move, look, four. I read six instead of four. I didn't have my glasses on. I'm sorry. Lift up your eyes around about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Verse 9. Sure, the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come to bring your sons from afar. Isaiah says, God knows where they're at, and the day's going to come. They're going to be brought home. Now, Isaiah 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, says that this vision is about Judah, the southern kingdom, and its capital, Jerusalem. Judah had advantages that other nations and even Israel had that other, that other nations did not have, and even the other tribes did not have. They had preeminence. They had leadership. They had other things. Throughout history, Judah had only Davidic kings. The top northern kings could not say that. Every king from the north was wicked. Their temple worship was loaded there. That gave them an advantage. Now, because they had that advantage, when we look at what Judah is doing here, it makes their sin even worse. Because they had things the others didn't have, it means their apostasy was even worse. Unto whomsoever much is given will much be required. Okay? But who is Jacob? Let me show you. In chapter 49... Of Isaiah, Jacob, it said, look at verse 1. It says, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I will tell you what will befall you. Look at the next few words. In the days to come. He's going to tell each son what's going to happen in the future to the tribe, to their families that come from each son. Reuben was the oldest. Now, being the oldest, that should have given him certain things. He should have had a double portion of dad's inheritance, and he should have had the leadership position 
of the nation and of the family at that time. But look at what happens. In verse 3, look what he says about Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but, look what it says, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. He takes away the privileges and the rights of the first son. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it and went up to my couch. Because of what he did, dad takes away what was rightfully his, and he gives it to somebody else. That word uh, uncontrolled, the word means boiling, and it means that Reuben was unstable as a person. So God says, not you. Now, does it pass down to son two and three? Nope. Look at what it says about the next two sons. It says, Simon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and their self-will they lamed oxen. Cured by their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. They also sinned. These guys were violent. They went in and wiped out a town, and they were cruel about it. And he says, nope, I'm not giving it to you guys either. First Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 says this is what he did. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn because he defiled his father's bed. His birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. <clears throat> that means the double portion was given to Joseph. And then something else was given away, he says, so that he was not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brother, listen to this, and from him came the leader. So the double portion goes to Joseph, but the leadership position goes to son number four, Jacob. So listen to what it says about Judah. In verses 8 through 12, he spends more time here and more time with Joseph than any other sons. We're going to focus on Judah. Look at what he says about Judah. Now, as you look at this, there are four. There's actually more than four, but we're going to look at the first four because that applies to Isaiah. Look for four prophecies about Judah as we read this. Judah, number one, your brothers shall praise you. Number two, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. That actually goes back to number one. Then it goes back to number two again. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, he dares rouse him up. Who dares rouse him up? Three, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Number four, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is coming. Now, that's the first four I want you to look at. It says more. It says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. <clears throat> he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. And that is a Jewish way in their culture of saying there is going to be amazing prosperity 
in the future, in the future kingdom, okay? But for right now, let's just look at the first four. Verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. His fellow brothers, the other 11, will praise son number four. That means he's going to be a leader among the tribes. Judah, at this point, it seems like he's already taken over as a leader, even before dad says it. Because when they were taking uh, Joseph and the other brothers were jealous, they were getting ready to what? They were going to kill him, okay? What was it that kept them from killing Joseph? Judah spoke up and says, hey, listen, here come some Ishmaelites. How about we sell him instead of killing him? Judah, and they listened to him. They did. So it's already, it appears that Judah is already a leader. When the brothers go down and they don't know it, but they're standing before Joseph, who's number two in the kingdom, who's the spokesman for the brothers? It's Judah. Judah does the talking for the other brothers, okay? In Numbers, it gives the list of the tribes as they march through the wilderness. Who is first? First in line is Judah, okay? Now, the nation of Israel conquered Canaan, and the lot of the children were passed out. Who got the first and biggest portion and the best portion? Judah did. Judah got the land where, what city? Jerusalem, the capital city, the place of the temple, is in the land apportioned to Judah. So they get that land. <clears throat> then two censuses were taken at the beginning of the wilderness and at the second and at the end of the wilderness trek, that 40 years. What was the largest tribe in both the censuses? Jacob. Jacob is the largest tribe. Listen to Deuteronomy 33, verse 7. Moses wants to conquer an enemy. They're getting ready to fight. Listen to how he prays. In this regarding, he's talking about Judah, he says, Hear, O, voice, o Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be able to help against his adversaries. So Moses is praying that this tribe would win. Why? So that the whole nation would win. He prays through the tribe of Judah. Even after the nation is divided, Judah remained the dominant tribe. During the captivity, the most prominent man in the Bible at that time is the prophet Daniel. Daniel was from what tribe? Judah. So he was the greatest at that time among the Israelites. And after the captivity... If you read, I was reading through Ezra this week. There are three groups that are mentioned that go back from Babylon to the nation, to the country when they're allowed to go back. What are the three groups? Judah, Benjamin. Benjamin shows up again. He disappeared for a while. Now he's back. I don't have an explanation for that. And then the third group was the Levites, so they could open, so they could do the temple. No other tribes are mentioned, but even then, Judah becomes the main representative tribe of everybody. And that's why, after that, after they go back, what are they called? From then on, they are called, from the line of Judah, they're called Jews. That's where the word comes from. If you look at Revelation, and it talks about each tribe and the 144,000 witnesses that are coming, what is the first tribe that is listed? Judah. 
Judah is the number one tribe and represents the nation of Israel. Second prophecy, verses 8 and 9, it says, Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And then in verse 9, it says, Judah is a lion's whelp. If you had your hand on your enemy's neck, what would that mean? Mean you beat him, okay? He is completely submissive. Daniel, I'm sorry, David writes two, and they're identical, in Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel, 20, uh, 2 Samuel 8. No, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. It says, David explains how he became a great soldier. In Zechariah 12, it says, and when they're fighting the nations, they're about to be conquered. It says that the spirit comes upon them, and it says, even the feeble will be as who? They want to compare it to the greatest soldier Israel ever saw. Who was it? It was David. David conquered, and during his reign, if you read what he did, he brought in the borders, and he conquered nation after nation after nation, Okay. David was the greatest. Now, he writes in these two chapters how he did it. And then, as he does that, this is what he says. You have given me, and you have to see this in the King James if you look it up. See, it's in the New King James or the King James. It says, you have given me the necks of my enemies. What is he saying? He says, because of what I've learned to do with God's help, being the greatest soldier that I am, I, and it fulfills what he's saying here. God gave me the neck of my enemies. Where was David from? He was from the tribe of Judah. Now, who was the first son? I mean, who was the first king of Israel? Who was the first one? David wasn't the first. He was the second. Who was it? Saul. What tribe was Saul from? From the tribe of Benjamin. What happened? God rejected him, and from that time on, The only one that could reign was from the tribe of Jacob. It says that Judah is compared to a lion. In Jacob's blessing, if you look through this and you look at each son, five times a tribe is compared to an animal. Judah is compared to a lion. Issachar is compared to a donkey. Dan is compared to a serpent. Naphtali is compared with a doe, and Benjamin is compared to a wolf. Now, Numbers 2 gives the arrangement of the tribes, and they were camped, and it says, and each camp had a standard. So if you were walking around, you, know, you want to know which tribe was, they would put a flag up, and it would have your symbol. So it's probable that Judah and these tribes had a symbol of these animals on their standard, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but if... I was Issachar, I think I'd want to switch to Jacob, okay? But it is very likely that Judah was known as the lion's tribe, okay? Now, Judah is still today in the nation of Israel symboled as a lion. It is still a prominent symbol. Some of the archaeological uh, digs that they've done around Israel, they have found coins, ancient coins, with a lion on it. Also, I'm told that one of the modern uh, coins in Israel still has a lion on it. It's appropriate that the lion would represent this tribe because the lion is known as what? The king of beasts, okay? Now, the New Testament 
carries this theme. Look at Revelation 5. You don't turn there. But in the temple where the throne of God is, the main character when we stand and we worship him is who? We're going to be worshiping the king of kings, Jesus, and he is called what? Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's how Jesus Christ is identified. That's who we're going to be worshiping one day. Now, verse 10, it says, Now the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. The most important part of this prophecy is here. Jacob tells us that the scepter would not depart from him. Or the lawgiver, that means one who decrees, now, it says it will not depart from his feet. That may refer to his ancestry, to his children. But the only, the point here is that the only legitimate kings of Israel throughout her history had to come from what? If you are legitimate, that verse says you have to come from the line of the tribe of Judah. Where did Jesus Christ come from? Jesus Christ is from the tribe of Judah, Okay. Now, the northern king had 20 different kings. From Jeroboam to Hosea, they were all illegitimate, and God rejected every one. Now, there's a phrase here. Don't let it fool you. It says, until Shiloh comes. The way that's worded, it makes you think that when Shiloh comes, that the line will depart. It actually means just the opposite. Don't let it fool you. It means that when Shiloh comes, the best is yet to come. Okay, But until that time, if you're legitimate, you have to come from Judah. But there is coming Shiloh. That's the fourth one. It says, until he comes to Shiloh. What does that mean? The literal translation means, it says Shiloh is coming, but it really means until he comes to Shiloh. Now, what, what is he talking about when he comes to Shiloh? Different thoughts here. One of them is that Shiloh was the name of a town that was built near Bethel. During the time of the judges, this is where they set up the tabernacle. But it was never an important town, and it was later destroyed by the Philistines. The prophecy does not refer to a town, because when it, look at it, it says, until Shiloh comes, look at the next thing it says, and to him. Shiloh has to be a person, okay? Who is Shiloh? It's Genesis 3.15. Remember, my seed will be against your seed. He will bruise you. That, that's who Shiloh is. Shiloh refers to the coming Messiah. The name means he who has the right to rule. Or it could mean also the one who brings peace. And the reason people think it might mean that is since the word shalom is related to this. And shalom means peace. Now that fits, because if you look at Genesis 2, when the Messiah comes, what happens? The world is going to experience great peace. War will end. Your swords and your spears are going to be turned into farming equipment, because there's no more war. Very possible. When the Messiah comes, there will be great peace, and so it could mean the Messiah will be the one who brings peace. That could be, and that, that is. We know that it is the Messiah. Now... I want to go somewhere here, and I want to be careful. This vision, I want you to think about something. This vision is about Judah, okay? Now, let me plug in a word here. 
This vision is about the Jew. Does that change your perspective a little bit? Okay? This perspective, it's going to affect how we treat the rest of this book. And that's why I'm going here. I told Meryl I'm a little bit careful here because when you go here, sometimes you get a reaction. You just mentioned the word Jew, and a lot of times you're going to get a negative reaction in this world today. Anti-Semitism is rampant in this world. I'm reading a book right now called Future Israel. One of the things he does in this book is he gives a history of how the Jews were treated by the church. I didn't know that. It was being cruel. They had been treated cruelly. Another thing, I have read books, and I can give you a list of men today on the radio. Good men. Good men who preach the gospel, but they are against Israel. And I can give you their quotes. Some of the things they say about Israel, wow. Israel should not exist. Give it to Palestine. The promises and the covenants in Israel, it's not important today. It's only about the church. God is done with Israel. Now listen to me. The reason I'm going here is because what I'm going to teach you, this teacher is not going there. I don't believe that. And I take a stand here. I take a strong stand here. And yes, I think it's important. I am very, very pro-Israel. I love the Jew. And I think it is responsibility and it should be the position of every Christian to be in love with God's people and support them. Now, do I support their unbelief and the way they act? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But the point is, is that God loves his people. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Now, is this important? I think it is. And let me tell you why I think it's important. Paul is running down the peninsula. He comes into Corinth, okay? He meets a couple of Jews. They're Christians. They do the same work he does. And guess where they're from? They're from Rome. He talks to these people from Rome, and he says, I got to go there. After what he hears, and everywhere he goes, he's hearing what goes on in Rome. He wants to give them the gospel, okay? He can't. God says, no, you're not going there right now. This is one of the times when you want to thank God for saying no, because Paul can't go there. Instead of going there, he says, well, I'm going to do something. I'm going to sit down there, and he writes the book of Romans because he can't go there. Now he doesn't give the gospel just to Rome. Now he gives it to us, too, all through history. Great blessing coming out of an answer to no prayer. But as he's given the gospel, and this gospel is given to established Christians, he says at the beginning and at the end, the gospel, it is fantastic. All young Christians, you need to know the book of Romans. It will establish you so that nothing will throw you off your faith. Okay, it's important. Now he gets to chapter 8, and it is fantastic. And then all of a sudden, he stops. And the first time I went through this, and for years as a young student, I could not figure this out. He stops and he goes, I'm going to spend the next three chapters talking about Jews. What has it got to do with the gospel? Whoa, whoa. And then he picks up again in chapter 12. And sometimes it looks to me like it's not even, 
Why? It just connects to chapter 8. Okay, there is a reason, and there's a very good reason. Look at what he says. Is this important? I am telling the truth. Look at verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now listen to this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Do you know what he's saying? I wish God would send me to hell. Paul is saying that. Time out here a second. Moses did the same thing. Cut me off. Cut me off. May I never see you again, God, if you kill your people. Save your people and send me to hell if that's what it takes. What is going on with these men of God that they would say stuff like that? You know why? They loved Israel. They loved the Jew. They loved God's people the same way God loves them. Impressive. I wish I myself were a curse, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory. Now I want you to lock on to that next one. And the covenants. Remember that one. It appears that Paul was greatly concerned about the way the Gentiles' attitude towards the Jews. He'll say in chapter 11, verses 18 and 20, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches, <clears throat> for if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Quite, quite right. They were broken off their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Paul sees the need to clarify whether the promises of God to mention in Israel have been canceled. That's the same thing that's going on today. Is God done with Israel? That is a big argument even in the churches today. I've argued with several pastors. They believe that the promises are no longer in effect. Now, listen, that bothers me. That one really bothers me. <clears throat> there is something that you have to do to get there. You know what you have to do? You have to change the way you interpret the Bible. You have to spiritualize Scripture. You have to say it's all symbols and it represents something and it doesn't mean exactly what it says. I have a real problem going there. God made some covenants with Israel. You know what that is? That's a contract. God made a And you know what those contracts were? The Bible says they are eternal. They never end. Now, the reason that becomes a big deal to me is that I have a covenant with God. You know what it is? Salvation. God made me a promise. He says that if I do this, he will give me eternal life. Oh, wait a minute. He doesn't really mean eternal life. Can I go there? You want to, do you want to go there and do that? I don't. If God can break a covenant with Israel, why can't he break my covenant? Guys, I think this is a big deal. I take my stand here. God will keep his word. He will keep his eternal covenants with Israel. Listen, I'm just going to read pieces of the verse as we go through it. Now listen to what he says. Verse 4, to whom belong the adoption, the sons, the glory, and the covenants. Verses 6 and 8, listen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
God's word to Israel did not fail. Verse 2 of chapter 11, <clears throat> God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You hear exact opposite day among many good men. Verse 11, they did not stumble so far as to fall. You know what fall means? It means he's done with them. Paul says they didn't fall, they didn't stumble that far. Okay? Now listen. <clears throat> I'm going to emphasize a couple of things, and that's the reason we went here. Number one, this book is about the Jew. God loves the Jew. He is not done with them. He is very pro-Israel. And the lessons that we go through in the book of Isaiah, listen, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to say this is all symbolism and that the church has replaced Israel. I'm not going there. I'm going to believe when it says that God is going to bring them back and that he's going to fulfill every covenant he promised them and that there's a coming future when all of this is going to come literally true, I believe that. And that's the way the approach from here on is going to be. <clears throat> this series is very pro-Jew. I want to read to you just five verses. Listen to what God says. You think God has given up on Israel? Listen to what he says. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness. Did they see righteousness in chapter one? No, but the day is coming that they will see it. And all kings, your glory, and you will be called by a new name with the mouth of the Lord, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You will no longer be called forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be called desolate. For you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land, married, for the Lord delights in you. And to him, your, hand, your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, and your, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's all future. Is God done with Israel? No. No, he's not. And that's what we're going to say. That's how we're going to approach this from here on. Now, something else is very important to me. I love this country. And at the risk of going political, I know you're not supposed to talk about politics. That's not my goal here. I'm not changing your politics. But listen, God made some very clear promises to Abraham in the covenants. In that covenant, he says, I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. That covenant was passed on to his sons, and then that covenant was passed on to the nation of Israel. The United States right now is not a good nation. We're a sinful nation. But one of the things that keeps us alive and existing is because we support Israel. I will bless them that bless you. We are blessed. Listen, if you pay attention to politics or the news, there is a very strong push right now to change that. In your considerations, this is very important. If this country is to survive, we need to support Israel. God loves her. 
I love her, and the United States needs to support her. Jews wrote the book that we are studying. Isaiah was a Jew. Jews wrote this book, maybe the exception of Luke. And another thing, we have come here to worship a Jew. Our Messiah, our Savior, the Son of God, the reason that we can do this here is because of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is a Jew. Read Isaiah. This will be my last point. Isaiah chapter 1. Read this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Listen. See the audience? Now turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. What is the focus of attention here? The lion from the tribe of Judah. Who is it? It is Jesus Christ. Remember what we talked about last week? Plug it in here. Our failure in the garden was what? We did not honor God. We honored the enemy instead. And what happened? We lost the kingdom. We were put here to guard, to subjugate, to rule. We don't do that now. Now we serve, and we serve the enemy in our natural state without God's help. Okay? Now, John is crying, and he's not just crying. He is bawling. Why? Because there is nobody that can take the scroll that is in the Father's hand. But then comes along the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is found worthy. He's the only one that can do what is about to be done. He has proved himself to have the right, to have the authority to take it. You know what it is? It's whatever is needed to take back the kingdoms and give it back to us. That's what's in the Father's hand. When he does that, the crying stops, and we start celebrating. Why are we celebrating? Because Jesus Christ is about to fix what we broke. What happened? All the earth, the animals, the nature, and everything that God, in all this realm that God gave us, was cursed. And it is cursed because of our sin. The second Adam is coming, and he's coming as the lion from the tribe of Judah. And what's he going to do? It says he's come to take the kingdom back. The kingdoms of this world are now his kingdoms. And when he does that, he gives it to us. We realize that, and look what we do. And when he had taken the book, verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And look what we start doing. They start singing, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. That is what we were supposed to be. That's what we will become when he does it. Look what it says. And they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Now listen, remember that audience? 
What's that audience? It's all of heaven and it's all of creation. Look what happens. We start praising God and look who joins in. Heaven joins in. Around the throne and the living creatures and elders and the number of them were myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory. Next, see who joins in next. Remember the audience? All of earth is listening. Listen to this. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now listen. The day is coming, and I am very much looking forward to this. When, without any interference, no more interruptions, I, with a full heart and this broken mind, will be fixed. And for the first time in my life, I'm going to be able to fully praise God the way that I can't now. Not only will I be able to praise in that way, but everything that was broken because of my sin is now going to be fixed. And we're all going to do what we're supposed to do back in Eden. And fully, 100%, I'm going to become what I was made to be. Who did it? Who got me to that point? And who is it that makes me want to do that? It is the lion from the tribe of Judah.